Sit on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. Never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity. See the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is on the way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning, as I look into your eyes, and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant death will be transformed. Then we will be in God's kingdom we will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we have the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons, to curse us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. We even pray for those persons who despitefully used us. Oh God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes to work out this controlling force to love and this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. Let us join together in a great fellowship of love and bow down to the of Jesus. Give us this strong determination in the name and spirit of this Christ we pray. We're talking about loving our enemies this morning, and we have a living link to someone who grew up in Georgia under Jim Crow laws, and unfortunately, due to health reasons, uh, Isabel can't be with us this morning, but uh, she comes as often as she can. She can't be around crowds right now. But Isabel Lucas sits with us and worships with us most Sundays. And she grew up, her and her family, and they endured wicked treatment simply because of the color of their skin. And I've had many conversations with her, and she told me it wasn't just culturally acceptable where she grew up, it was expected. And if you were white and you took sympathies towards someone with dark skin then the hate was turned on you as well. What I longed for was for you to share in some conversations I've had with Isabel about this over the years. But here's what stands out. I'll just recount some things. What stands out is this. When I talk to Isabel about loving your enemies, she doesn't speak through gritted teeth. She doesn't have the lingering stench of bitterness or resentment. And she isn't trying to speak lovingly, she just is loving. And it's remarkable to hear the things she endured and to hear the way that she talks about it is proof of supernatural love. 
Wherever Isabel goes, she's pointing people to God. I was with her one time when she was talking to doctors. And when doctors tell her that she has X amount of time to live, she says, doctor, you stick to what you're good at. That's not your job. That's God's job. And she has a forceful way of, of uh, speaking that you just say, yes, ma'am, when she talks. This week, she told me about a woman that had her mom diagnosed with cancer. And she told me, she said, what I said to this daughter who was in a lot of despair and had no hope she said i told her that having no hope is nonsense no one's going to get better until they look to and speak to god every day that's how you get better and isabel had this daughter in tears a stranger and she said can my mom call you she's in oklahoma she goes she can call me It doesn't matter where she is. I'll talk about the love of Jesus. And when she saw racism every day as a child, she was taught to entrust herself to her trustworthy God and to pray for her persecutors. When Isabel missed Easter Sunday, which I know is a huge deal for her, I gave her a call and we had a good chat this week. Just let her know that she was missed. Her church family missed her at our family celebration. And I'd said to this, I said, Isabel, I love how you talk about God no matter where you are. And here was her response. She said, if you're a so-called Christian, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Yes, ma'am, was my only response. We're going to sing a song right now called Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. And as we sing this, church, I encourage you, sing heartily this is our anthem of hope this is what we've come to experience there's something very powerful very tangible of the grace of god when his followers worshipers come and gather together and lift their voices to sing to him this is an anthem uh, that just celebrates the astonishing love uh, that god has for us and it really is the starting place if we don't get this then all this talk of loving our enemies will fall on deaf ears And that's not my hope this morning. Blessed are the arrogant, for there's the kingdom of their own company. Blessed are the superstars, for the magnificence in their light, we understand better our own insignificance. Blessed are the filthy rich, Truly own what you give away, like your pain. Blessed are the bullies, for one day they will have to stand up to themselves. Blessed are the lies, the truth can be awkward. Well, we have been talking about the blessed life that Jesus teaches and something powerful about when you juxtapose it uh, over and against some of the teaching that we receive, some of the things that get the spotlight in our own day. I think the truth is that the teaching of Jesus, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is so upside down and backwards uh, that you will be tempted 
to abandon the Jesus way of life often. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. Not only does the flesh have to unremember what it's done for a long time and what it's naturally given to, but also you have a society that tells you that you're crazy for walking this narrow path that Jesus calls you to. We're in a section of scripture in the book of Luke where Jesus is looking at a question that really philosophers, theologians, poets, and artists, and educators, um, and mind workers have looked at for centuries, and that is, what is the happy way for the human heart? And Jesus is resetting our way of thinking. Why is he resetting it? It's because it's broken. We were born broken. And if you have a bone that's, that's shattered or broken, to not reset it means it no longer functions in the way it's supposed to. It can't heal in the way it's supposed to. It will continue to cause pain until it is reset. Everyone else but Jesus will tell you to adjust your brokenness to your current condition. And there are many things now that uh, you'll be labeled as a liar or a hater for anyone who would challenge the teaching of our culture. Now, if you want to know the deeper meaning of these blessed ways of life, you look at Jesus. But knowledge only goes so far. If you want to experience this blessed way of life, then you begin to copy him. You begin to walk as he did. You begin to let him live through you. First John 2, 6 is this. Whoever claims to live in him must, what? Walk as Jesus did. The blessing comes in the obedience, not just in the knowing. So today, the good doctor is going to offer up one of his most memorable and most difficult teachings ever. And it's incredibly portable because it's only three words. I say it's portable because this lodges in our brain and we know it wherever we go. It's not like we have to stop and call to mind or pull open our Bible and remember what it is. Love your enemies. And there's, you'd probably be hard pressed to find another teaching of Jesus that runs so countercultural in this day of tolerance, right? and acceptance, and love being the highest virtue, love being the thing that justifies any desire that you have. If you do it in the name of love, then you're unquestioned. There's probably not a more countercultural teaching in his day when it was originally given or in our day than love your enemies. If some of the highest teaching from the highest morally good of our day preach, do what makes you happy, and above all else, don't impose your beliefs on anyone else, love your enemies, crushes both of those. So what I want to do is I want to get to reading what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. So turn there with me if you haven't turned there already. And we're going to look, starting in verse 27 at a portion of this sermon that he preached. And what I want to do this morning is just read what Jesus said. And to kind of highlight that the most important sermon you will hear all week 
is this section of Jesus preaching. I want you to stand up with me. I want you to be looking at the Bible with me. It's not going to be on the screen. And we're going to stand not only out of respect of God's words, but to highlight this is Jesus talking, not the preacher coming up with this. Let me read it straight through, and then I'll make a few comments. Luke chapter 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Jesus, you began this portion with saying to those who hear, God, I pray that we would truly hear what you have for us this morning. Give us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I put a central truth in your handouts, and it's quite simply this. Love supernaturally by the power of supernatural love. Jesus' point in this portion of Scripture is really, really easy to identify. It's love your enemies. He goes on to give roughly seven commands that kind of expand on that, but it's a pretty straightforward, not hard to grasp main point. He then goes on to offer really concrete examples of this. He gives application. And like any good preacher, he actually addresses the little countering points that we will give in our own hearts. He addresses those ahead of time. The internal justification upon hearing such an awkward truth might be this, but I already love, I already do good, I already lend. And Jesus exposes this as really just another variation of self-love. Love that comes naturally to us. Sinful love is simply love that doesn't need God to accomplish it. I'm using the term natural and supernatural. So a transformed heart is what's required to love supernaturally. And what Jesus has on display is his kind of love versus sinful love. There's nothing supernatural about doing good, lending, and loving people who will love you back. That's only natural. Jesus instead calls us to a higher life, this blessed life. I grew up on Brenton Avenue, which is right near Doyle Road, West San Jose. And I was out in the front yard playing with my brothers, as I often did. And I think I was in kindergarten. 
and uh, there was a, a boy across the street, and I can't remember who fired the first shot, but one of us threw a rock at the other one. And, uh, and so, of course, being uh, from a Christian home, if it was the first shot from him, <laughs> I retaliated in kind with, with some rocks. And, and this was a, a kid named Scott. And so Scott had his brother Gary with him. So, he, so Gary, now Gary and Scott are throwing rocks. And so I had my brother John with me, so we're now throwing rocks. And uh, unfortunately for Scott, he was out of brothers. I had two more brothers. And so this little battle ensued across Brenton Avenue. And here's what ended up happening. At some point, we stopped throwing rocks and got to know each other. Uh, And this is last summer, me visiting Scott and his wife and his two kids. He lives down in San Diego now, and, and we've kept in touch and he became my best friend all through elementary, all through middle school, all through high school. And it dawned on me that you never know when a ceasefire will lead to a friendship, right? And this is the way that our friendship began, was chucking rocks at each other. You think about Jesus, not only did he not return blow for blow, not only did he not throw rocks, he had plenty of brothers, by the way, he had plenty of big rocks he could have thrown. Instead, he responded to rock throwing with kindness. The title this morning is to live out love. When you read and watch Jesus, what you see really clearly is that Jesus calls us to love everyone always. That's the most simple way of putting it. And that includes our enemies. Best of all, he doesn't just tell us To do it. He doesn't just teach us with some examples. He models it for us. He shows us how to do it. Loving everyone always includes the least of these. There are some people that are less knowledgeable than you. There are some people that are lower in status than you. There are some people that are less wealthy than you, less healthy than you, less interesting than you. We're to love them. It also includes the most of these. Just as there are people who are less than you, there are people who are more than you in every category that you can think of. Jesus says love them. But not only is it the least of these that we're to love, the most of these, but it's the worst of these. There are some people who are adamantly against you personally and what you stand for. Jesus says and models love the worst of these. Being a Christian is certainly more than this, but it is not less than this. Let me simplify it for you. Loving people. Being a Christian is more than that, but it's not less than loving people. Cooperating with Jesus means that you'll find a love at work in you that compels you to love the least, to love the most, and to love the worst. It's actually a love that you can't explain to yourself On your own, naturally, you can't come up with reasons why you are acting this way towards certain people. People will remind you of this all the time. Why are you doing this? Sometimes the best answer I've known is this. I don't know. I have no idea. But I have a hint. I have a little hunch. Pretty sure it's God working in me. I'm pretty sure it's the wind blowing where the wind wants to blow. And I'm seeing the effects of that in my own heart in my own will, in my pocketbook, in my emotion, and I'm along for the ride. 
Love your enemies. Let me just take sort of each of these words and we'll look at it one at a time. First, you have to know what love is. If you think about love sort of in our pop culture, sort of just like what gets the most attention, I think that syrupy or sensuality are sort of the two words that people might associate with love. Neither one is a big help with loving your enemies, is it? It just doesn't work. It doesn't sustain for very long. The word here is agape. That's the word used in the original language. This kind of love is gritty, it's tangible, it's costly, it's knowable. It's practiced, it's learned. It's the kind of love God has for people. What does it involve? Love involves actions, not just words. So what does it look like? Well, long before it was a great book title by a guy named Bob Goff, love does is commanded in Scripture. Love that doesn't do isn't love. Those are just fluffy words that go back and forth. But love does. It has actions attached to it. Also, love blesses. Turn the other cheek we just read. Be generous. Lend without expecting return. If the least, the most, or the worst is injured, here's what it means. It means you don't bring poison oak to them. You bring aloe. You just bless. How can I bless you? How can I come alongside and be a blessing to you? We also know that love prays. Here's an invitation to you. Sometimes you don't know how to act towards your enemy. I would say begin by taking that enemy to God. Begin to pray for that person. If you're like me, that will start through gritted teeth. That will be very, very difficult. You will find yourself cooperating with the Spirit of God as you begin to pray for that person. Your prayers will begin in something like this. God, I pray you'd show them how wrong they are. Bring your righteous indignation into their life in full measure. You'll get really charismatic in your prayer for your enemy, I bet. And pretty soon, there's a whisper that says, man, your own vengeful, your own wicked heart is on, is on display right here. Eventually, you pray long enough for your enemy, and you begin to see them, and you begin to feel genuine pity on them, and you begin to feel love for them even. Here's an invitation. Some of you may pray the Lord's Prayer for your precious children, for your precious parents, for your brothers and your sisters and your church members. How about praying the Lord's Prayer over your enemies? Lord, teach us how to pray for our enemies. Use the Lord's Prayer as a model for that. We're to love when our life is threatened. When I think about hearing those words of Martin Luther King, it wasn't fluffy, was it? Talk about grit. He was walking out with a security detail. I don't know when that was recorded, but that sounded like just sort of a random church service that he must have prayed and preached at. And when he walked out the, the, the church at the end of the service, no doubt he had a security detail because his life was threatened persecuted, abused, threatened, cursed. So love when your life is threatened, but also love when your ego is threatened. When you don't get the greeting that you thought you deserve, when you don't get the promotion, when you are made to feel small, when you're shunned, when you're uncomfortable. Practice loving in those moments as well. Here's a question that I get often, and I hope you ask it of yourself. Should we take the Bible literally? 
Should we take the Bible literally? Anyone ever hear that question posed as a, as a Christian? So what's the answer? Should we take the Bible literally? How do you answer that? Yes. Okay. Always? Someone's going to come to you with that. And if they're like chess players, they're going to think a few moves down the road. They're going to go, uh, excuse me, what about this passage right here? And they're going to pull some things up in the scriptures that may be a little bit hard to answer. So Jesus says that he is a door. Is Jesus a door? Not literally. That's a metaphor. So that's a tough, that's a tough thing. Here's my answer. I think if someone says, should we take the Bible literally? I say, absolutely. In every place that you should literally take it. So in other words, there's all kinds of literature in a 66 book library called the Bible. Right? And so where it's, it's speaking in metaphor, just like we talk in metaphor, we, we need to, we need to temper what we mean by literal. So when you ask that question, should I take the Bible literally? I think yes is the short answer, but there is some qualification. How about this? Do we literally turn our cheeks to other people? Do we literally give the clothes off of our back to other people? Do we literally give to everyone who asks of us? Isn't that what I just read? That, that was the words of Jesus. So this takes some further digging. Jesus is teaching in some extreme language. And when you think about that, you might let yourself off the hook and go, well, certainly he doesn't mean everyone. Certainly doesn't mean actually turn the cheek. But when you take the words of Jesus and you view it paired with the life of Jesus, the teaching comes together. And let me ask you this. Literally, did he turn the other cheek? Yes or no? Literally, did he give them the clothes off his back without retaliation, yes or no? Yeah. Jesus evidently took this literally. So it's not a metaphor. And I don't just come up with that out of thin air because I want it to say that. I take the life of Jesus, I take his other teachings, I pair them up, and it forms a very clear picture now, I read the entire Bible. Do you know why I read the, the entire Bible? Because I take it literally. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for me. So I read all of it. You know what happens when I read all of the Bible? It actually shades the other parts in it, fills it in to go, is this metaphor or literal? Is this something that's sort of a, a dream? Is this prescriptive that I should do? Or is this just explaining something that happened? How do you know those answers? You, you read the whole Bible. Let me throw a couple of scenarios out at you. Give to whoever asks. Luke chapter 6 verse 30. That's what Jesus said. And yet, he also approved of giving laborers their fair wages and not what they demanded. See Matthew chapter 20. He also said that a laborer deserves his wage. Luke chapter 10 17. So here's the principle. We can't just run up and ask for wages because that person's a Christian. Some of you are business owners in here. I can't come and say, hey, I didn't get paid this week. Kick it over, buddy. I've set my price. You have to give it to me. I've got a, I've got a chapter and a verse. 
Nor can you, Christian business owner, ask more from your employees simply because they're a Christian and you're a Christian. You hold that in balance. You hold that intention of the other teachings of Jesus. Now, it's not hard to imagine scenarios where this teaching can be abused. It's also probably not unreasonable to say some of you live this. But where an abusive spouse is abusing the spouse, they are not simply to turn the other cheek. Where you are being asked for more money from your cousin who you know is addicted to heroin, you don't just give to whoever asks whatever they ask. So it's not hard to begin to plug things in and say, what else does the Bible teach? How else should I do this? There's someone sitting in this room. Many of your faces, by the way, came up as I was teaching through this. Because I know some of you are in real seasons of having to love your enemies. This is a, an encouragement this morning and a, and a difficult teaching. One of you sitting in this room wisely came to a, a small group and said, um, I need help figuring out how to hold intention this love your enemies. I'm trying to love my enemies as Jesus clearly said. And he brought it before the group and we prayed with this person over a matter of weeks and months. And we weighed in on it as brothers and sisters. That was a humble, submissive spirit to the community saying, brothers, help me. Help me live as Jesus taught. Because the flesh is waging war on my soul and, and other advice is coming in. I want to know what God has to say on this matter. So take these commands of Jesus as illustrative of what love often does rather than the exact thing that love always does. We'll get more to that in a second. How about the word your? Love your enemies. Just as loving your neighbors is personal to each of you, loving your enemies is personal to you. Does that make sense? So God's not going to hold you accountable for loving every enemy of the cross. First Peter says many live as enemies of the cross. It's not our command to love everyone. How about every neighbor? Well, the world's God's neighborhood. So we're not called to love everyone in the world. We're called to love every one of our neighbors. And if you need help on that, we won't take time to do it. But Jesus has a, a great little instruction on who your neighbor is. So love your enemies. I think you'd agree that enemies show up in different quantities, in different seasons of your life. Enemies show up in different seasons. Bob Goff wrote this book that I read a couple months ago called Everybody Always. And the tagline is this, becoming love in a world full of setbacks and difficult people. Here's what he says. He says, I think Jesus meant something different when he said enemies. He meant we should love the people we don't understand, the ones we disagree with, the ones who are flat wrong about more than a couple things. He says, I have plenty of those people in my life, and I bet you do too. Those are the ones we're to love. You know, the virtual world has opened up a world of potential enemies to you. Isn't that true? It used to be before your computer screens turned on, that you had a much smaller sort of circle of people that you interacted with and, and kind of knew. In a world that's fractured and arguing, enemies are not really that hard to find. If you open your mouth right now in a public setting and you voice 
some very middle of the road, very orthodox, very non-controversial, centuries-held beliefs about the Bible and God and Jesus, watch for it. You will have immediate enemies. Simply by opening your mouth about orthodox Christianity. You don't even have to look for it. You'll be branded a heretic and a traitor of the world system. Into this time, the love of God is working through normal, everyday Christians. That's the church, by the way. And this love is both a mystery and a magnet to a world longing for love. The way that you live your life should be head-scratching to people. How on earth are you not freaking out right now? But there should be this weird tension in people. They're repelled by you because the light exposes darkness and they're drawn to you. I hope there's something about when we gather and I hear this, I hear this from people that there's something about when we gather that, 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 that there's a love here that draws people. I also know because we're a room full of sinners. There's a silent group of people who say, man, I I was repelled because there's no love here. Same place, same people. God wants to draw people by his love. Here's one of your community group questions that you're going to wrestle with. Um, If your social media is leading to antisocial behavior, kill it. That's sin. Kill it. Unplug. Wipe it away. Here's a question for you. Do the screens in your life enhance or detract you from living the blessed life that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5? Answer that. Here's a follow-up. Do the screens in your life help or hurt you in loving your enemies? Friends, I would say take extreme measures And that may mean, I had a college kid one time that was struggling with looking at bad things on the internet, and he literally took his computer and he moved it to the front yard. As in, he got rid of it completely. Is that costly? Sort of. You're out of computer. But if it saves your soul, not costly at all. Pray for the grace to find Jesus in the face of your enemy. You know what you see with eyes of faith? You see Jesus in a little cracker and a cup of juice. That's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We come and we celebrate that and we find in that we're communing with Jesus in a very real, tangible way. Some of you are exceptionally gifted by God. He's given you the grace to find Jesus in a stranger. He's given you the grace to find Jesus in the homeless, in the destitute, in the have-nots, in the outcast, in the awkward. And if you can find Jesus in those faces, surely you can find him in your enemy. So pray for that. That's a, that's a grace that has to come from God. Again, this is supernatural stuff. Now let's talk enemies. We live in a culturally sensitive age, don't we? Compare that with the blunt language of Jesus. Enemies. He just throws it out there. Doesn't qualify it. It's not wrong to have enemies. In fact, Jesus presupposes that you'll have them. Notice that there's plural language here. Enemies, plural. 
Those who hate you. Those who curse you. Those who abuse you. The scope of our love here in this passage is massive. Everyone is a word used. And anyone is a word used. Who is my neighbor? It's the one who shows kindness. Who's my enemy? It's the one you choose to love. Anyone and everyone is a candidate for the love of God. For being shown mercy. For being generous to. For loving now, not all parts of following Jesus follow the same, uh, the same path. And this is a particularly steep part of the climb, so to speak. In snowboarding or skiing terms, this is like double black diamond Christianity. I took someone snowboarding for the first time this winter. And her name's Kelly Barrow. I didn't take Kelly Barrow on any double black diamond. You know why? Because I love Kelly Barrow. I don't want anything bad to happen to Kelly. I also don't want to come answer to her parents. Love your enemies is like double black diamond. It's tough. It's experts only. Here's the thing. No one who doesn't walk with Jesus can really love your enemies. But watch this. Everyone who is following Jesus will be led to the black diamond of love your enemies. You know why? That's where Jesus is going. That's where Jesus goes to. So some of you may have recognized in yourself, I made a choice one day that when it got to this line of loving my enemies, I let Jesus go on and I stopped. Some of you are stuck. You're still there. My prayer for you this week is God unstuck us, unstick us, move us forward. Give us the courage to keep walking with you. Jesus doesn't stop. If you're a normal, everyday Christian, he leads you to double black diamond stuff. It's not for super Christians, paid Christians, vocational Christians, whatever weird concept you might have of that. Experts only means you have to have Jesus with you. That's just called being a Christian. So who is my enemy? Some of you don't need any help with that. You're like, got it, we can move on. What if we rated people a little bit like ski slopes? Hey, what's up, green circle? Oh, my goodness. Here comes Black Diamond. Let's go. <laughs> Got to get out of here. Evidently, someone already started doing this. Um, Heather's not the worst, but she is more difficult. <laughs> but she's nothing like Big Mama. Big Mama's one is tough. So who are your, your enemies? Well, it's people who are flatly against you. They want to see you fail. There's some in this life that you are against. You want them to fail. That's what wells up when you think of their face, when you think of their name. It could be a character or personality or condition that makes them repulsive to you. Maybe it's a little bit less than repulsive. They just kind of creep you out so you just avoid them. It can be someone close to you. The wounds of someone very close. Jesus knew about that. It could be someone that you don't know personally. But just a group of people holding a view on politics or a social issue that differs from you. And so you generally just think those people as enemies. Here's what I know. We can always brainstorm more. But rather than label and categorize our enemies, Jesus says love them. It's a lot simpler than just trying to go, hang on, where do you fit exactly? Okay, you're a level seven. He just says love them. I know this, it's easier to talk about this in the abstract than in our own life. 
Isn't it easier to go back to Jim Crow South and sort of talk about historical things? And how Christians did act or should have acted or whatever and sort of think about it in other categories? Here's what I know. We can't obey in the past and we can't obey in other settings. I can't obey for people in Afghanistan right now. I'm responsible for me in this setting. So the focus is today in my life. Jesus assumes that this will be hard and will not come naturally. That's why he's commanding it. Jesus never commands his disciples to breathe or to eat. Those are just natural things. We just do those things. You command things that are supernatural, that won't just come naturally. Of course it's going to be hard. Here's another thing. Enemies may be a sign of obedience. Maybe you say, I have enemies. I must be doing something wrong. According to John 15, Jesus says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. From this blessing versus woe that he went back and forth with on the previous passage. It says, woe to you when everyone just speaks well of you all the time. If every gathering and function and person you know says nothing but great things about you, I have a strong inclination that your God is yourself. It's your self-image. It's being pleasing to people, even at the expense of being truthful with people. Here's what else we learned very quickly, that many enemies will not recognize your acts or your attitudes or your words as loving. See figure one, Jesus on the cross. He's acting in complete love like he always acted, and he's being killed for it. Supernatural love is something that exists, it's something tangible and real, and it's something that is expected. Supernatural love is something we can't touch, but we see it and we know it. In fact, we sing about it when we talk about Jesus on the cross, when we celebrate the resurrection. Those are tangible, objective realities. But supernatural love is also something that is expected. That is, God commands it of us. God never sends us without supplying us. He's not a bad father. He's a good father. And when he sends us out with this call to love our enemies, he supplies more abundantly than we would even think to ask. In fact, he supplies more than we would be able to even imagine. Some of you right now are stuck because you're limiting in your imagination. You think, I could never not hate that person. I could never bless that person. You may not become lifelong friends like me and Scott did. But your ceasefire is commanded of you. And your example is your commander himself who lived this life. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, For God is pleased when conscious of his will you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, 
even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Let me wrap up quickly with sort of what's accomplished by loving this way or maybe why do it. Two of them are answered directly in the scriptures. Why love this way? It's because that's the way we would want to be treated. Look at verse 31. And as you wish that others would do for you, do so to them. Culture knows that as the golden rule. People often say, well, Christianity is just like every other religion. Everyone has a golden rule. I say, read a couple sentences before and after the golden rule. You'll see very quickly how rapidly Jesus departs from all other people who've taught the way to a happy life, the way to a blessed life. In describing good, Jesus goes where no one else goes. So why love this way? It's because that's how we'd want to be treated. Number two, it's so we can earn a great reward and prove we are God's children. Look at verse 35. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Some of you can testify today that the reward that you experience is not in the by and by. It's not someday eternal. It's already happening. You've already received it. You realize that the chains that Jesus came to set you free from were encased around you by your own hate. And as God melted that heart of stone, turned it into a heart of flesh, and you began to love your enemies, take Jesus at his word, you realize, wow, the great reward has already begun. I pray that for you, friend. The last one is this. This is Christ being formed in you. Loving this way is Christ being formed in you. It's true that you are healed as you love extravagantly. The least, the most, and the worst. Part of your personal testimony for some of you is this, that a life lived for the self breaks the self. A life given away in love regenerates the self. God designed healing. In extreme cases, we think of Nazi Germany, we think of our country in the south. We know that hate hurts the hated as much as the hater, right? The ones doing the hating as well as the victims. It's a lose, lose, lose proposition. I'm going to ask some of you in this room to take a risk this morning. We're going to end our service. Um, in fact, if we could just kind of kill the lights. And uh, I'm not sure the band is in the room, but as much of the band is in the room, come on up. One of the opportunities we have here is to just meet as in smaller groups and to process this stuff. 
And long before we get to a specific passage of Scripture, life brings about circumstances where people come and say, hey, I've got enemies. What am I supposed to do with them? I need help. I need prayer. Well, I say that should happen in small groups, but we we should also be able to let it happen here in a setting like this. I'm going to ask some of you to identify, I need prayer today in loving my enemies. You might be in a particular season where you just feel stuck. If you're bold enough and extroverted enough, while the band plays some music, I want you just to stand. And a few of you who are gathered around can come and pray uh, during this next song that we sing. Maybe standing would prohibit you from reaching out for prayer. I don't want you to be reached, uh, inhibited from that. So make yourself known. Maybe you just raise your hand. Maybe you just touch someone that you came with and say, would you, would you put a hand on my shoulder and pray for me? I need the grace of God to love supernaturally, and I know I can't do it on my own, and I'm stuck. I need prayer in this season to love my enemies. Close your eyes and listen to this passage. If you're in a community group, value your group. What an opportunity to be a trustworthy companion to one another. If you're not in a group, I don't care if you're in a formal NBC group or not, get with other Christians. Philippians 3.17 says this, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Oh God, we need you not to wander from this path you've called us to. We need you, God, to to have eyes to see those around us even who are walking this path, to learn from them, to tune our ears to hear how to walk the path of life that you've given to us. Jesus, what you taught then is true now. It's a life or death matter for us to take you at your word not just at the point of conversion not just the decision to get baptized but God every day to live out our life I pray in this room God those who are desperate enough those who are poor enough in spirit that see their need that say I can't make this this on my own God that they would make themselves known to their church family God that you would withhold judgment from other people Instead, God, that we could rally around them as brothers and sisters, hold them up in prayer. Pray over them, God, that they would have eyes to see your unexplicable love, God, for your enemies and the transforming power that has had on our life. So church, just now as we sing keeping in an attitude of prayer. The band's going to lead us in a song. While the song's playing, I would invite you, stand up, come forward, touch someone near you to indicate, I need prayer in this area of loving my enemies. Let's sing.